You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. Forgiving isn't easy. I was having a conversation with Trisha's son about that right before we were starting. He was contending that you just do it. And I think by the time I get done talking, you'll know that I agree with him in some ways, maybe not in others. So to forgive someone is, I'm gonna come at it from the perspective that it's, it's a gift. Um, and I think we live in a day and age when forgiveness, any of you who've tried to stay in a friendship, a love relationship of any kind for more than a couple of weeks, know that forgiveness is essential. When, when we talk to young couples about how, uh, what, what love really is, what it takes, or what it takes to stay together, they talk about love exponentially. But when you talk to older couples, they'll still talk about love, but they always mention forgiveness as well. So this is sort of embedded in our relating as human beings. So I'd like to suggest that it's this gift that we offer. It's not dependent on a good apology. It's not dependent upon improved behavior. Often when we think about forgiving, our focus tends to get stuck on the person who hurt us and we're caught in this kind of perpetual cycle, if you're like me anyway, of looking backwards. Our minds return to the pain, to the actions that harmed us, and bitterness can really grow strong inside of us. And instead of looking backward like this, I want to explore moving our focus to giving this gift of forgiving out of our own choosing. It takes work, but this is good work and well worth all our efforts, according to psychological research. The reported health benefits, we've been studying forgiveness for a couple of decades now in my field of psychology, and just the health benefits alone are really significant. So I'd like to try to explore this angle on forgiving. It's an invitation. I want us to think of it that way, as an invitation from God that's usually in disguise, Uh, an invitation for our growth. Forgiving can be a pathway to turning our suffering to joy, but it really takes a mindful attention to pull it off. We sort of have to go step by step with God and by God's spirit at work within us, or we can easily slide into acting out a kind of obligation, shutting down our feelings and perpetuating the trauma within us. Try not to do that. Go slowly with yourself when you need to forgive. Go prayerfully. But ultimately, what I want to underline tonight is something that all the research shows. We really just can't do nothing when we're faced with this problem of forgiving. A lack of forgiveness can harm us perhaps even more than the original harm done. It can harm us physically as well as psychologically. We live in need of protection from evil. And I think this might be the place where we really struggle. 
isn't that obvious from the daily news cycles, right? Aren't we living in a time where forgiveness is completely overlooked, certainly in our public discourse in so many places? So hopefully, maybe looking at forgiveness together, this is my hope tonight that we can cast some light onto the path about how we can grow when we're faced with this need to forgive, how it can be this disguised invitation from God. So, oh, my animation didn't come through. You're supposed to just see this knockdown, shacky looking thing. And then I'd click the button and that would come up. And it goes with the C.S. Lewis quote that I want to read you, so just listen for a minute. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So I think that's the foretaste of what, what this invitation from God means. When someone hurts you, when you're faced with this need to forgive, I'm hoping that you think back to this process that God invites all of us into and this hurt can be transformed into a place where you learn more deeply about yourself and you grow in your relationship with God. So when I was first coming to my study of psychology and Christianity, I became involved with a professional organization called CAPS, the Christian Association for Psychological Studies. This organization has become my professional home ever since. At one of my first conferences at CAPS, I met Ev Worthington, a voracious researcher and a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Ev was one of the earliest researchers in the field of forgiveness, and in the last 20 years, that field has kind of exploded. So there are lots of other people writing about forgiving along with Ev. But Ev came to this study from a very, very personal perspective. His elderly mother was sexually violated and brutally murdered in 1996. His brother found her body. Five years later, his brother committed suicide spurred on by these tragic events. Ev has worked at forgiving his mother's murderer, and he has worked at being able to forgive himself for not being able to help his brother. And I'm going to borrow heavily from Ev's work tonight. I think, it, uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. So a bit of a lengthy quote here from Ev. Wounds are part of life, just like dying is part of life. Yet it is anxiety producing to dwell on those certainties, so we often create an irrational belief 
that protects us against facing the negative. We hope that our irrational belief will give us hope. It seems on the surface that it really should, but to the contrary, it undermines hope. The belief is this, I have a right to experience a life free of pain and suffering and filled with joy. We claim that rightness because one, we try to live justly, righteously, treating others most of the time with respect. Two, we are especially strong, skilled, bright, or good. Three, we're Christians and God loves us and has a plan for our lives. So there's a disconnection between these beliefs about ourselves, about our place, about how we relate to God, which power our daily lives. And any rational analysis of our condition in life would contradict these. There's a disconnect, is what I was saying. When we hold these beliefs and live as if they were true, we expect no pain, no suffering, no unfair treatment, and in general, a just world. However, our just world usually overlooks any of our own hurtful behaviors. Our expectations are thus often violated. We look for someone to blame. I want to suggest that the old cottage from that picture, he didn't really get to see how nicely dilapidated it was, and God's invitations feel like a huge leap or even a crushing obligation this renovation project God is taking on in all of us. Things get really messy when we're hurt and we are confronted with what often feels like a demand from God to forgive. So as we explore the topic, I think it's important at the top of this conversation to remember some things about us and the way we work. Human experience is broken out into two levels. We consciously are aware of things, and then there's a lot else that's going on in our experience, in our minds, that we are completely unaware of. Psychologists like me talk about it as the unconscious. That vocabulary has really filtered into our uh, common language in our culture, so I'm not saying anything unknown to you. But neuroscience has advanced so much that we can even take pictures of this happening in our brains. We have areas of our brain that are active as we interact with the world. They process inputs from our senses, and we have a conscious understanding of what's going on, of who we understand ourselves to be and how we are located in space and time, while at the same time, other parts of our brain are firing like crazy in order to make interpretations of all that information in order to bring meaning. We're comparing whatever's coming in with past experience. We're looking to identify what might be dangerous, that's always our predilection as humans, and how we need to respond. Lots is going on outside of our awareness, or in psychological terms, in the unconscious. From a theological perspective, one could describe our experience of living with this conscious and unconscious sort of levels going on in us as a primary result of sin, of the fall, of the breach that we've experienced if we look at Christian theology from its beginnings. 
not only are we separated from God, but I'd contend that this bifurcation of our experience is just evidence. We are separated even within ourselves. We are fragmented. Knowing ourselves is only partial from our experience. I think we're all aware that these deep motives that move us to think and feel and choose behavior that is sometimes quite surprising to us, this stuff is happening all the time, right? Haven't you been in an argument with someone close to you and you said something that surprised you? Maybe even came upon feelings that surprised you. When we are faced with the need to forgive, we could rightly think I think we could rightly consider this as this invitation to understand ourselves more deeply. Something's happening in that unconscious part of ourselves, and we can more honestly know ourselves. We may come to learn about what we value and what we do when we're desperate. If we pay attention rather than simply react, I think we can learn surprising things about ourselves right at this intersection that we'd all like to avoid. I think I decided that I wanted to talk about this tonight because Rod and I were out to dinner with some old friends of mine from uh, Eastern that I've known for many, many years. And almost a decade ago now, there was one of these uh, academic kerfluffles in my life in the university. I was a professor there. And uh, some of my colleagues behaved really, really badly. So much so that, um, I really decided I just needed to walk away. That um, the programs that I was building at the master's level would have to go on without me. And so um, I really wrestled with this. And in fact, I talked to one of these friends that I was having dinner with way back in the middle of this conflict. And what he said to me stuck with me. You know, he said, well, <coughs> If these folks are somehow afraid for their jobs, they might do anything, and you really can't stop them. <laughs> and that seemed radically unjust to me. Some, the one person that I, I think it hurt the most for me was a person that had actually lived in our home for some of the time. Her brother, when visiting Philadelphia, had come in. She sat at the dinner table with my sons. You know, this was, a, this was a person I considered a friend, and yet she had sort of surprised me with this characterization of me that I was, that I was scary, that I was unapproachable, that I was, well, Lots of things. You don't need to know all of them. But what I noted all these years later when I was talking to my friends was there was still this twinge in me of hurt, I think. I still need to forgive her. And it's been a decade. And beyond that, it's been a great decade in my life. <laughs> God took me out of one program and dropped me in another place where I got to be more creative, doing more of the things that I think I was gifted to do, having great success, getting accolades from the university. I mean, it just all worked out wonderfully for me. But in this conversation, when this name came up again, I could still feel it, right? 
And so here I was again. I need to forgive. So Matthew 28, I'm sorry, Matthew 18. Jesus is teaching about forgiving. And Peter listens and decides to pose a question. He pushes his mind to the, to the very limits of what he thinks is imaginable. Should I give seven times over? Jesus' quick reply is mind-boggling. No, 70 times seven. Now, how satisfying would that be for you if you were in an argument with someone about them perpetually, I don't know, coming late and sort of disrespecting your time. You sit around and wait for them. And they seem completely unapologetic over this. Jesus' recommendation is that you forgive them for this 70 times 7. That's 490 times for those of you who like math. That must have felt like Peter was living in a house that was getting stretched beyond its limits. At first glance, it does seem like an extreme. Wouldn't this be abusive to stay in a relationship like this? Well, let me add quickly, in cases of abuse, we're talking about cycles and boundary crossings that need careful examination and discernment. So if you're in an abusive relationship, please seek help. 16 counselors at Circle Counseling are ready to assist you. We can talk about that, and I'd be glad to talk with you even later tonight if you feel the need. But I'd suggest that in this passage, what Jesus is doing, once again, is taking a reality and making it obvious, a reality of human nature that he understands. He really gets it about what it's like to be human. He knows that the release we experience when we forgive is vital to our growth and to our health. Psychology has come along these thousands of years later and just added proof to that. Jesus knows that it is far from easy in our current condition to accomplish this kind of forgiving. So when you or I attempt to forgive someone who has hurt us, we are likely to succeed in fits and starts. Like 10 years later, I'm bumping into some at least nuance of this need to forgive again. I may forgive my friend today, and find thoughts of the harm or the injustice flood me again tomorrow. So then I need to forgive again. This process goes on and on. For some of us, it even feels like I, I, I forgive at maybe nine in the morning and before lunch I need to forgive again. Where can we expect to find the fortitude for such efforts? Well, here's where our living houses really get some new construction. I think it's this very process in which we would do well to turn to God and not to ourselves. So don't give up on yourself if you're trying to forgive somebody until you've gotten beyond 490 times today. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't consider yourself a failure. Keep forgiving keep forgiving. 
we do well to remember that we are, however, I think the basis of this is to remember that we are forgiven first. Deeply, completely, without regard for our deserving God's forgiveness. And so from that place, from this truth, we forgive others and forgive and forgive. So here's the hidden invitation. God wants to enlarge us in the struggle to forgive as we have been forgiven. Don't consider yourself a failure too soon. Keep going. We're going to have to do this a lot. We all simply have to repeat this. So this is where my friend Ev's research on forgiving comes in. He came up with some steps we can model when we are in the midst of a situation in which we need to forgive. His model that he, he came up with is called the REACH model because each of those steps uh, spells, the first letter spells out the word REACH, R-E-A-C-H. Um, the scripture is clear that we're supposed to forgive. Jesus makes that plain. But there's not a lot of instruction in the Bible about how you go about it. And that's where Ev began his research. So we start right there. Oh, I guess we don't. We start where the blue arrow is, sorry. Um, in our culture, we often think of this. I think this is important, and maybe we can talk more about this when I'm done here in a couple of minutes. But we tend to think very individualistically. So I thought about my need to forgive my friend in the story that I told you about. But as I struggled with that and got friends to pray for me and tried to understand what was going on and sort of got through that very messy period of my life, I came to realize that a lot of the strength I found, I found because it was a community that was involved. I had people not only assisting me with their prayers and their comfort, but I, I think that there was this, this deeper sense of extending something beyond just what I as an individual might extend. And I'll, I'll have more to say about that as we go around these steps. Um, but certainly, we know that in Circle of Hope. We've had lots of broken relationships, lots of things happen that for some folks, some people feel completely unforgivable. This was an unforgivable experience. And um, I just, I want to acknowledge that because I think as a body, we, we get these hits. We are hurt collectively when one of us is hurt. And so, in a very genuine sense, we need to figure out what it means for us to forgive as well. And these are not, these are not easy, easy things. So I took Ev's research and I made it into this wheel. He, he just kind of sets it out as steps. But I wanted the picture to be a wheel moving around um, because I think we do cycle through this over and over and over again, always learning more about ourselves if we listen deeply, and always, I think, needing more of God's whisper of love coming through again and again, that you are forgiven, 
and you are safe in God's arms. You are sheltered in his grace, and therefore you can forgive. So let me just walk you through here. It starts with recalling the hurt, and this is where I think people in general miss the mark. We, particularly Christians, we fall into doing something that we think is right, and we do it out of obligation or duty. And I've even said to you tonight, you have to give this gift. You kind of have to choose to do it. Um, but to really come through the cycle, we have to acknowledge what has happened. And that may not come quickly. So we're going to have to go slow with ourselves. We will have to work at talking with others about what this means. It can start with bewilderment, with outrage and anger, and we have to keep talking about this until we can really get to the end of articulating these feelings. And there is no clock running on this. We simply have to be able to recall the hurt in its fullness, or we won't be able to fully forgive. The second step, I think, is the most outrageous. But for people who are successful forgivers, as Ev found in his many conversations with people, and by the way, some of us all find this, find this easier than others. It's just the way we are, hardwired, different from one another. If you find this next step easy, you're a lucky duck. But this idea of empathizing with the person who has hurt us, it does not mean that we think of how we deserved what they gave us. It does not mean that we push aside all this acknowledging of the hurt that we have done. But it does mean that we try to take their perspective and see what happened for them. In my case, with my friend, I needed to remember the things that I knew about her, why she was a very, very anxious person, and what I may have done to trigger that anxiety when I was in this role as her boss. We hadn't started out in that role. I had been promoted into that. And so it helped me to understand that as I had a vision for growing my department, I was pushing on her to do some things that caused her to be very anxious. I needed to empathize, to come up with what she was feeling and why she might be feeling it. It helped me too with my psychological study to remember things about her family dynamics. I tried to pull up everything I could think of about her that would help me understand how she could behave in the ways that she was behaving. So that step of trying to empathize with a person who has hurt you, what it did for me was it, it, it helped me with a lot of my anger, but it also opened me up to realize, I think one of the key things that God's been teaching me about in the last 10 years, and that's about the kind of drivenness that I have. I'm, I think I, I keep in my unconscious a, a fairly high level of ambition that I didn't realize was there. 
And the more I thought about these incidences, even with years looking back at them, the more I began to understand, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of driven to perform and to accomplish things, and I, I think it leads me into places where I'm, I'm being radically maybe hard on others, and I need to see that. And then God reverses all that when I was on retreat. Not too long after this, I did a seven-day silent retreat, and one of the things that I most clearly heard from God was that I needed to give up my drivenness because it was killing me. It was impacting my relationships, particularly my relationship with myself. Third step in Ev's model is to um, give this gift altruistically. My friend didn't really ever deserve this. She's never asked for forgiveness. She's never apologized. She has sidled up to me on a few occasions when I was doing some other work at the university to try to get some more stuff from me. <laughs> she wanted to see if I could uh, argue with the administration about some things on her behalf. And, and this, this giving has to come from that place of, okay, I am just giving this. I may be giving this the way I, I leap off rocks into deep water. It's one of my favorite things to do. I leap off those rocks though, right? Knowing that there is deep water below me. And I don't leap off them if I do not know that that water is deep. And so I, I have to give this gift in the same way that when I know these circumstances are the best I can get them, now recognize my hurt, I've tried to articulate it, I've tried to sit with it, I've tried to talk with trusted friends, I've tried to empathize with the person who hurt me, and now I know the water's deep and I can leap. I can give this gift. I'm going to forgive. I am going to forgive her. And then we have to commit. I like this image of leaping because it undermines or it underlines this gift giving because there's really no going back, right? You give the gift, you make the leap, and you are committed, <laughs> right? You're going, and that's radically important. But what good forgivers taught Ev as he listened to them and did a variety of uh, experiments trying to put people in different conditions and talk to them about their experiences. It's almost as if these last steps are, are just melded into one. You give this altruistic gift, you commit to it, and then you hold on. That means you forgive again and again and again so that you're doing it 70 times seven. And always from this place that we're trusting a God who calls us beyond ourselves, who calls us even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of a political system like the one we have today, in the midst of all of that, he calls us to forgive, which will then free us to act in love even with the worst of our enemies.
And when we live in that place of God's shelter, fully acknowledging the reality of all our various responses within, well, we'll know a freedom. We'll know that we live in a palace, that we're protected and sheltered, and that grace covers us. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.